Now, last week and the week before that, both Tim and Jared had mentioned in passing that through this series, we were kind of bumping into each other or overstepping or overlapping each other in, in our conversations, and they're exactly right. Because God in His character, by necessity to understand His attributes, we had to look at them one at a time. But, but God is not a collection of parts, kind of like my Hyundai, by which you understand the whole of who He is by looking at the individual parts. That's not how He is. So what we want to do, I want to spend a minute or two just talking a little bit about how these attributes work. So, for example, on the slide behind me, uh, God is not merely, oh, I'm sorry, there's like two slides overlaid on one another, isn't that? Uh, sorry about that. So, God is not a collection of disparate attribute parts. Uh, God is not some kind of, a, uh, it actually looks like a grape cluster, but he's not some kind of divine cosmic stew by which you throw in certain attributes, we'll throw a little holiness here, omniscience there, and sovereignty here, and out pops God, as if we change change the ingredients, we put a little jolliness and a love for milk and cookies and out pops Santa Claus. That's not how God works. He's not created by a various collection of attributes like some kind of cosmic Lego set. That's not how the attributes of God work. Neither, the second slide shows, is that God's attributes are not additions to who He is, as if somehow there is this core of God and then onto that, God is slapped on some goodness, and God also is powerful, and then he's got some mercy tacked onto that, and, and as, if, as if those attributes were somehow accidental to him as opposed to essential to who he is. In other words, as if, as if uh, justice were something that could easily just fall off of God, but God would still be there. That's not how God's attributes work together. So he's not a collection of disparate attributes. They are not, attributes are not tacked on to who he is. Rather, God is a whole unity simultaneously all throughout who he is, is his holiness, is his truthfulness, is his mercy. As a matter of fact, this reality of God is itself an attribute. God's oneness, God's unity is itself an attribute. All of God's attributes work together. They are wholly, fully present in his being consistently and coherently. Consistently, all the time, and coherently, without contradiction. God's attributes are never in conflict to one another. That's pretty astounding. So, so God never waffles on an issue. He doesn't change his mind. God, God is never in a mood that, that maybe his wrath is the leading edge this morning as if God needed his coffee to get it straight. God never wakes up on the wrong side of bed. Those are all limitations of finite emotional beings like we are. That is not how God's many attributes work together. His, his perfect glory and goodness and holiness and wrath and grace are fully functioning at optimum levels and are never at odds with each other, but rather serve in a constant state of reinforcing his maximum perfection within his being. That was a pretty hefty statement, wasn't it? But it's true. You see, the, the, the fundamental feature about God, as we've said in this series, is that He's not like us, and we need to keep reminding of ourselves that because that's just the natural, that's not a wrong thing, but that's a natural point of reference we're going to have to God, that He's a bigger one of us. 
But the reality is, his various attributes, the way they all seamlessly function together in a state of reinforcing multiplied perfection within his character is completely different than any one of us. Even that description, though I think is accurate, is still not good. Because by definition, perfection doesn't need reinforcement, does it? Perfection is just what it is. It's perfect. And see, this is where, in a series like this, we are bumping up against the limitations of even trying to understand this God that we love and adore and worship. Because finite man can never grasp infinite God. Any more than my, my dog Napoleon can grasp the thoughts I'm thinking throughout the day. And that, that, that pales in comparison to the difference between us and God. And, and this is where, he, this is why, by the way, theology up until the last century and a half was regarded as the queen of the sciences. Did you know that? Up until right the turn of the Enlightenment, it was without question that the study of theology was above all things the queen of the sciences. Because right out of the gate, and the very thing that defines the whole playing field is almost beyond our ability to comprehend. And it's at this point that the human mind does one of two things. The human mind is either led to worship because coming into recognition of this amazing being that only can elicit worship, or the human mind goes to disbelief because there's no way a being like this could exist, and so we disbelieve that. And so if in this series we were able to just a bit nudge or maybe push entirely self off the throne of your own life, then we have hit the purpose that we wanted to do with this series. It's to make us recognize, as, as Jared so beautifully displayed, when Isaiah saw the Lord, his first response was, I am. He was worship, was to get out of the way, in a sense, and let God be God. So what I want to do before we jump into this last attribute, because we had so much good things to talk about God in this series, I want to just briefly recap the main arguments, the main uh, points that were being made in this series. You recall we started that we should live for God's glory for two primary reasons. Humanity, all of us, was made. That was what we were made to do, was to live for God's glory. And secondly, we should live for His glory because humanity, all of us, flourish best when we live for God's glory. The week after that, we talked about that, that we should believe that God is good because we see God's goodness in creation we see God's goodness in his character, and we see God's goodness most supremely in the cross. A week after that, we, uh, Jared talked about how we should revere God's holiness because God's holiness shows that he's totally not like us. We should revere his holiness because God's holiness exposes what is unholy. But then it didn't end there. We should revere God's holiness because God's holiness makes us holy through Christ. And then last week, Pastor Tim talked about how we should actually love the wrath of God because it is true. 
Scripture talks about this, and because of that, we should love it. Secondly, and more importantly probably than the first, is that God's wrath demonstrates his love for his people. And, and Tim used this great illustration of jealousy, the right jealousy between a husband and a wife, that it demonstrates his intense passion for the people he loves, and then God's wrath brings final and eternal peace as God's wrath against sin and wickedness and injustice crushes those things and ushers in eternal and long la- eternal peace. Today, as we wrap up this series, here's the point we're making, that we should meditate on the grace of God and I was, I was wrestling honestly with using the word understand. We should understand the grace of God, but that sounds very dry, doesn't it, sometimes? It's very cognitive and dry. So I thought, I, I want to use the word meditate because there's, got, there's a richness to it, but the problem is in our culture, when people think meditate, we are influenced by a kind of Eastern mystical idea of meditation where the idea is you kind of blank your mind out and somehow cosmic truth kind of comes into your head. That's not the biblical view of meditation. So when I say we should meditate, It is with the biblical idea, and this word appears all throughout the Bible, of meditation. Biblically speaking, meditation is a very rich and robust uh, thinking through, of of working through, almost like a mental MMA, where you're, you're wrestling with something until you take it down and dominate it. We should meditate in that way on the grace of God because... God's grace describes his attitude towards us. Uh, that, that you might be able to say that is the, the leading edge, in a sense, of the way God feels towards his people is this feeling of grace. Secondly, God's grace awakens and cleanses us from sin. And then third and finally, we should meditate, wrestle with, continue to go over our mind till we take it down and dominate God's grace because it empowers us to live righteous and holy lives. Now, with, with each message in this five-week series, we, we blurred the lines between focusing directly on the attribute itself and how that attribute uh, intersects with our lives. And I believe this has been primarily deliberate because theology, the study of God, is for life. It can never be just some dry, abstract thing of information because whatever you believe about God, it will shape the way you live your life, for better or for worse. It's just the reality of it. And understanding the grace of God is no different. Now, another reason, I guess this is not one of my main points, but another reason thinking about God's grace is important is because the word grace, it's like one of the most used words in the believer's vocabulary, isn't it? And we use it in so many different and very differing ways, right? Uh, so, so, for example, we can say, God is gracious. Hey, man, let's give a little bit of grace. Hey, we can eat after someone says grace. Have you met my sister named Grace? I love Grace's plate lunch diner. I go to Grace Church. You see my point? We use the word in so many different ways what exactly does it mean when it makes up such a core of the Christian life? Now, there was probably a time where culturally we understood the underlying kind of conceptual freight of the word, and that's why we loved it and applied it to so many different things. But over time, we begin to associate those different things with that word and have lost the original dynamic sense of the word. Does that make sense? So, so when we say grace before we eat, 
I actually think that's kind of an odd one. Why do we say grace before we eat? Well, actually, we'll know in a little bit. I'm working through it in my mind right now. But the point is, we love the concept, so we applied it to so many different things. But I think we're losing grasp of the concept. And so now we have replaced what the word means with these other various topics. My point simply is this. When a word can mean almost everything, it's in danger of meaning almost nothing, right? right? We, we use this with the word love, right? I love my wife. Oh, I love In-N-Out Burger. Wait, okay. If I love In-N-Out Burger with, like the same way I love my wife, what does that say? You get my point. So we want to make sure that we understand grace because it's such a powerful dynamic of the Christian life, and it describes God's posture to his people. So the first thing we want to look at is grace, that it describes God's attitude toward us. Now, one very real sense, this message is going to be just one long, uh, one in-depth word study on the word grace. The word grace itself comes from the Greek word charis, and it means favor. It means goodwill, gracious care, help, or, or benevolence towards someone else, usually from a superior to an inferior. Now, in the New Testament context, where, where Christianity primarily gets the meaning of this word, it was actually a very common concept. Now, in Greco-Roman culture, let me Greco-Roman culture was basically ancient Greece and ancient Roman culture came together through Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire and became basically the cultural influence that dominated the, the Middle Eastern world during the first century. Kind of like we would say Western culture today, Greco-Roman culture, the values and beliefs of Greece and of Rome came together and created what's called Greco-Roman culture. So that was the context where the church, where the gospel first was birthed. In Greco-Roman culture, this idea of grace or charis was embedded in an institution called patronage. Now, the Roman philosopher Seneca the Younger, he puts it up there, he says that patronage is the chief bond of human society. What, what he meant by that was that patrons would give to, to their, the people that they were showing patronage to, would give kindness, goodness, access, uh, advancement, and benefits to someone lower than them. And that person was, in a sense, obligated, once they've received that chorus from the patron, to, in a sense, declare the fame of the patron and the generosity of the patron. Now, it, was a, a very, it wasn't really a mutually beneficial arrangement, but it was a willing patron who wanted to give of his goodness and a willing receptor who wanted to receive that because in that time period, there were very few ways to advance in culture. So when you had a patron who would give you access and advancement and benefits, that was seen as one of the few ways that your life could improve. So in the New Testament proclamation of God's grace, it would have been seen in this social context. Now, what that means is that the attribute of God's grace in the same way, not entirely, but in the same way, is a display of a willing patron who wants to bestow favor and goodwill and care for someone lower than him. Now, if we go back to an earlier diagram, we're not going to put it up there, but uh, th what that means is all of God's attributes, his power, 
His holiness, His goodness, even His wrath are all predisposed for your benefit if you are one of God's people. God's grace is His absolute favor towards those that are His. Now, what I want us to do, as I said, this is kind of a word study. I want us to go into the Word and study it. So, if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. We're going to do a little bit of jumping around in the New Testament, so I want to prepare you for that. If you're new to reading your Bibles, uh, the big number is a chapter. The little number is not a footnote. That's a verse division. So when I say chapter 4, verse 33, look for a big 4, and then all the way down do you find a 33. That's how we read the Bible, 4:33. So in the book of Acts, the fourth chapter and the 33 verse, we read this. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. What, how do we mean? What do we mean by that? So God's great favor, God's, God's posture of favor towards them was, was greatly given to them. Does that make sense? Now go to chapter 14 of the book of Acts. We are going to page through a lot of these. Chapter 14 and verse 3 of the book of Acts I'll just, just keep doing that. I love the sound of those Bible pages turning. So chapter 14, verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. What does that mean? The word, the gospel of God's posture of goodwill and care for those who need it. The word of his grace is this gospel, this word of God's care for his people. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They had been commended to God's benevolent care. They had been commended to God's favor towards them for the work that they had been called to do. Um, we can skip Acts chapter 15, verse 40, because the words used identically there. Look at Acts chapter 18 and verse 27. Acts chapter 18 and verse 27 says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he, speaking of Paul, arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace, through God's benevolent goodwill, had believed in the gospel. So you see all these usages of the word grace, if you put into there God's benevolence, God's favor towards them, it completely makes sense of how that word is being used. Grace, first and foremost, is the foundation that says this is how God feels towards his people. It is a posture of goodness, of kindness. Everything we've talked about in this series, there's a reason we ended with grace. His magnificent glory that the universe and creation attest to. His goodness, His holiness. All of these things are coming towards us in a posture of goodwill to benefit us. Now the second reason we want to meditate on God's grace is because, here's point two, God's grace awakens and cleanses us from sin. Now, the Bible teaches, my friends, that to even realize our predicament requires God's grace to us. This is radical, to, to even realize that I need to and should respond to the gospel requires God's grace to the human heart. 
Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're in the book of Acts, just go two books to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Doesn't make sense. It's foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, to us who have come to realize the power of the gospel, it is the power of God. Look down a few verses at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. I love Paul's candor here. There is a trend in the cult, the church today, that wants to get rid of what we call expositional preaching. There is a trend away from preaching to a more what they call narrative or talking or just kind of five points to this, three points to that, away from preaching because preaching has such a, well, such an authoritarian push to it and we're much more egalitarian culture. We don't like to preach anymore. But I love Paul's candor that even then he said, look, we get it. That, that preaching, especially in our culture, standing here for 30 minutes or maybe like today, 60 minutes just talking seems ludicrous. But Paul says, but it was through the preaching. God chose to use the folly of what we preach. Look at the next phrase, to save those who believe. My friends, can I just be really frank with you? As, a, as someone who preaches as a pastor, what drives me nuts in a good way when people will tell me hey I just loved how you were just sharing that and I go oh yeah you know I'm not in kindergarten handing out gummy bears to everyone I'm not sharing here I want to preach because the last thing our culture needs friends is people just sharing opinions the Bible doesn't say that faith comes from just sharing or that those who are saved are saved through sharing. The Bible is deliberate that we get saved through the preaching of the gospel. The very, the very I was going to use Greek and I shouldn't do that in a sermon. The very good news has to be preached. We don't ever want to be a church where from behind this music lectern we simply share as if our preferences or opinions have any weight. Paul says, preach. And the foolishness of preaching leads people to salvation. And apart from that, we can't even recognize our need. Look at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. The next chapter over, verse 14, Paul says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, this is why before you became a believer, you had no problem with some of the actions and attitudes of your heart that you now recognize as sinful and rebellious because according to 1 Corinthians 2, you, you didn't even have a category for those kinds of things until through the preaching of the word, God brought in new life and you recognize that you were sinful. Friends, I wonder if you've ever thought that being aware of your own sinfulness was God's grace to you. Being aware of your sin is actually a sign of God's grace. 
feeling the conviction of our sin is one sure sign of God's grace to us. I remember years ago, I recall uh, uh, hearing one of these fire and brimstone preachers, you know the type, they, they're really into theology, and they've got those thick goatees where they scratch and stroke when they talk about like God's wrath, for example. Like, like that guy right here for, you know, they, they love to go on about wrath and, and all those things. You knew payback was coming, Tim. I mean, just... And for the record, I have never done a jig like this when I preach. I, what was that? I don't do that. <laughs> the point is, this, this preacher was preaching on the, 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 the weight of sin and the, the burden that we bear. We even sang it this morning, the weight of sin. And after he was done preaching, he was at the back of the, the sanctuary like they traditionally did, and the pastor would shake hands. And there was a young boy, a young man, who who clearly didn't believe a word the preacher had said, went up to the preacher and really began to mock him, said, what, what weight? I feel no weight of sin. There's no burden on my shoulders. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't feel a thing. And this wise pastor stroking that goatee, he just looked at this young man and said, if I put 2,000 pounds on a corpse, would it feel that weight? Now, obviously, the answer is no, because a corpse is dead and feels nothing. And that's the point. When you feel the weight, you know you're still alive. Now, you might be asking, well, what, is that really better? Isn't it better to just be dead and not feel guilt? After all, guilt is the most worst thing in our culture. Well, a thousand times no. Not if that guilt drives you to see your need. And see, the reason that being awakened to our sin can be such good news, my friends, is because the same grace, the same grace that awakens us to our sin is the same grace that cleanses us and frees us from our sin. Okay, look with me in Romans chapter 6. Go one book back from Corinthians. Romans chapter 6, and Paul writes this, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul writes, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Skip over to verse 14 of the same chapter. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under the law, but now under grace. One more passage. Go with me to the book of Ephesians. Go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read to you verses 1 through 6. Paul writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in, once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I don't know about you, but before I became a Christian, I, I kind of knew I, I was not a Christian. I was, I was not under the delusion in any sense that God and I were on good terms. You've probably met, and, and I don't know everyone here, but if you're not a believer, you might think that you and God are on good terms, that there's kind of a, maybe a moral neutrality, maybe a spiritual DMZ zone. You don't, you're not on that side, but you're not at war, certainly. Can I just say, this is not my opinion, 
But what the Bible says is that's the furthest thing from the truth. That before you were, unless you are one of his, it says you are by nature a child of wrath, an object of wrath. There's no moral neutrality. You are either worshiping the king or you are rebelling against him. Ephesians 2, that, that's why we don't believe in sharing. You need to hear, this isn't me. That's what Ephesians 2 says. And here's the reality. All of us in this room, were right there, weren't we? But look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what he do? Made us alive together with Christ by grace because of his benevolent goodwill to us. He may, he, we have been saved and raised us up with him. Oh, and guys, this is just a little bit bonus, but man, look at that verse. And seated us with him, present tense. If you are in Christ, the Bible saying you have been raised up and now are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ is at the right hand of God, distributing repentance and faith and all these gifts. Ephesians are saying in a very real way, the way God sees his people is you are raised up and you are sitting there at the right hand with his son because of his benevolent goodwill to us. So it awakens us to our deadness, but it's the very same thing that makes us alive. Last verse, Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, I'll just read it to you. Who is there to condemn, Paul says, as he's building this theological argument, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. <laughs> So Paul's just building this theology that if you're in Christ, you're actually in a very real way at his right hand. By the way, who else is at the right hand? Jesus himself, and what's he doing? He's interceding for us because of his benevolent posture towards his people. So grace is his favor that's bestowed upon us, and one of the results of that is that it awakens us to sin, and we go, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is what I am. But at the same time, it says, but I'm gonna cleanse you from that. And then... And really importantly, the third point this morning, God's grace empowers us to live righteous and holy lives. This is a really important one to get in Christianity today because I think sometimes we have a very limited one-dimensional view of grace. My last church that I worked at, I had a young man who reported to me every week and I'd ask him about his work assignments and generally speaking, they weren't going so well every week. But his line was always this, uh, I want to read how he put it. Well, that's why we believe in grace. Okay, I let it go. We're, we are a church. Yes, we want to display grace. But after a couple months, I said, you know, you keep saying that, and it sounds right, but it feels so wrong. Now, here's, here's my point. My friend had a good grasp on God's grace toward him as an expression of his favor and goodwill. He certainly had a good grasp of God's grace towards him, forgiving him and wiping the slate clean. He got all that. But what he seemed to not understand is this third point. 
That grace, that same grace that forgives and removes our sin from us is the same grace that changes us and constantly refines us. The same grace that cleanses us is the same grace that changes us. And that's an element that I think we so often forget. We have this one-dimensional view that grace's primary job is to wipe the slate clean. When that couldn't be further from the truth. Grace's job is to wipe the slate clean so the new work can take place. Go with me to Romans again, or maybe you're still in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Paul writes this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, you are dead to this. Now consider yourself alive to a new life. But look at Titus, that's over in the pastoral epistles right after First and Second Timothy. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says this, it's amazing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, here it is at verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Powerful. Look at last one, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I'll, I'll go over there. You can just listen to this. Write it down. Look it up at home. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes this. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God's grace is always oriented to changing us. Grace was given so that we might change, not remain the same. Grace was given to wipe the slate clean because we could never do it, but to lay the foundation of a new man or woman in Christ. And we saw that. Now, getting a good grasp on grace is the key, the key to understanding Christianity. Whether you are a Christian or not, understanding what we believe about grace is key to understanding the Christian faith. I'm going to put this on the screens because it's such an important point, I think. Humanity's primary spiritual problem is not only caused by failing to live in obedience to God, but also by relying on obedience to Him. Can I say that? Because that, I'm not playing word games here. This really is true. Our primary spiritual problem, whether you are a Christian or not, is simultaneously caused by failing to live in obedience, but also by relying on obedience. What do I mean by that? My friends, we must live in obedience to God because that simply is the right way. When we live in obedience to God, that is an extension of His glory. That is the expression of His goodness. That is the expectation of his holiness. That is the escape from his wrath. And that is the enabling of his grace. So we must live in obedience. Because it's a direct corollary of the character of God. But, but, if we think our obedience is the thing that makes us right, we become self-righteous. And our works, and we make an idol of the very behavior and denounce in our heart the God whom we profess to love by our obedience. Does that make sense? 
Obedience must happen, but it's not the key. And we have to have either ends of these aspects of grace to understand either one. If we just believe grace is there to make up for my failures and forget grace is there to change me, then we will not pursue holiness in our life and we will make a mockery of the Savior we profess to love. However, however, the flip side is, if I only view grace as a call to holiness and forget its loving and forgiving and merciful nature, I will live a life of rigid morality and suffocating dogmatic religion. We need to have both elements of grace balancing each other out. See, biblical grace says your obedience is so right to the degree that it's a response to God's goodness and His glory and His holiness and mercy toward you and through you. It's so right. But what do we mean by that exactly? How does that play itself out? Um, and that's what you're going to have to come back for our study on Galatians is because I've run out of time. So, but let, let me just say it this real quick. I want you to go back to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, notice what he says, what Paul says in writing to young Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. Whoa, whoa, the grace of God has appeared. And then look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 to understand. I love how Scripture interprets Scripture, chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The grace of God manifests is Jesus Christ Himself. And so we want to know what does that look like to live in that dynamic. Chapter 3, chapter 3 is saying looking at G, what Jesus Christ is doing by that in chapter 2, we change, become more and more like him. We can't unpack that now because we are running late, but that really is what the whole study of the book of Galatians is about. So we want to meditate on God's grace because it is the predominant way he relates to us, his people. It is the way he awakens us to our sin and cleanses us to our sin, and it is the way he enables us to live holy and righteous lives. We could have gone on in this series for another five weeks easily and still not scratch the surface, but we need to move on, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. Father, easily we could have gone on for five more weeks. We've gone on for the rest of the year talking about your character. But Father, we know, we have confidence that we're going to see that character being displayed through the lives of our brothers and sisters in the Church of Galatia so many years ago. And we're going to see how that's so relevant to our lives today. We thank you that we can gather again week in and week out to continue to encourage one another, to motivate one another, to challenge one another, and to be a family together. We thank you. We have all this because of your grace in Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.